Welcome everyone to this international meeting, COVID-19 and the global struggle between life and profits. This is, a ho- this is a meeting hosted by the International Socialist Tendency. We are an international network of revolutionary socialist organisations. Our aim is to bring together socialists from different countries to discuss how to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic and the new challenges it has posed for revolutionaries. My name is Sophia Beach. I'm a member of the British Socialist Workers Party, which is a member of the International Socialist Tendency in Britain. And I'm also very proud to say that I'm talking to you live from Bristol, naturally by being a member of the SW. I'm also an anti-racist activist um, and we're very happy to say that here in Bristol just under a week ago at our Black Lives Matter protest last Sunday, we tore down the statue of Edward Colston, a famed slave trader, a horrible racist who should never have had a statue in the first place. And we're very proud to see uh, waves of statues and calls for other racist statues to be called down globally. Um, We're very proud of that here in Bristol. We've got four amazing speakers here for you today. I'll introduce them each individually uh, just before they speak. But to let you know, we have Yanis from the US, Christine joining us from Germany, Baba from Nigeria, and Joseph from Britain. Um, I'd also like to let you know that after each speaker has spoken for 10 minutes, there will be opportunities to ask questions. So please do share the stream on Facebook. If you're watching on either Facebook or YouTube, you can comment in the comment sections below and ask your questions and hopefully I'll be able to see them and ask them after each person has spoken. But uh, without further ado, I'm going to introduce Yanis, who will speak for 10 minutes. Yanis Delatolas is a member of the Marx 21 organization in the USA. Uh, sorry, I've just been, we've, we've had some technical difficulties. Um, Yanis has actually left the chat, so I'm going to cut to Christine first. Sorry about that. Christine Bukholz is a member of, she's an MP of Delinka, the leftist organization in Germany, and she's also a supporter of Marx 21. Sorry about the technical difficulties. Christine will be our first speaker for 10 minutes, so I'm going to pass over to you, Christine. Okay, welcome to to all of you. And um, so we actually didn't want to start with Germany because Germany is um, um, a situation which is not good. Um, But of course, um, we know that the situation in many countries um, in the world is much harder than here. Um, And so, yeah, but let's go for it. Um, So the corona pandemic makes injustices visible, which already existed before. And This is also um, true for the situation in Germany. So the measures against the coronavirus mainly affected people with low or medium income and the poor. Workers in hospitals, supermarkets and elsewhere have maintained social life. Um, And we realized that the privatization of the healthcare system um, that caused problems before, um, yeah, caused now many more problems. Already for 10 years, trade unions have been demanding the creation of 150,000 new nursing jobs. Um, and so, yeah, you can imagine how the situation, um, um, the situation here is. Um, and, um, yeah, to also give you an, an, an idea about the situation in the European Union, um, the situation is even worse, of course, in countries like Italy, where the health systems have collapsed because of the forced austerity policies, which is also, this was driven by the German government. Not to talk about the horrible conditions of the, in the refugee camps on the periphery of the fortress Europe. So both the EU and the German federal government have now invested billions, or they are, they're about to invest billions. Um, they are mainly for capital, because capital is in fear. 
For the German economy, for example, expects a slump of 6.6% in the current year. In April, exports slumped by 31%. So COVID-19 is not a natural disaster. So the coming crisis not caused by the coronavirus. This was just the trigger. So we are currently experiencing a long depression without a risk recovery. The cause is a low, low um, profit outlook. So governments worldwide and now the EU Commission um, are outbidding each other in new debt programs to save capitalism. So the last variant is an EU reconstruction program of um, 70, uh, 50,000 billion euros. Um, and since um, March, the German government has been providing emergency aids, aid loans, guarantees and tax relief, at least mainly for companies. So just two days ago, um, the federal government of Germany announced um, 150,000 billion um, euros um, for um, like a rescue program. Um, we um, have to understand that aid to the company is not linked to collective bargaining, a ban on redundancies, a ban on dividend payments or binding climate targets. So a large corporation can expect the state to take on deals that a private investor would never do himself. Um, so to give you an example, the rescue of the Lufthansa airline with over 9 billion euros, twice as much as the, um, the company is worth on the stock exchange, makes the class character of the crisis policy in this country particularly clear. Instead of nationalizing the airline, the German government is doing everything it can to ensure that the managers and the shareholders continue to have um, the saying um, in, um, in the corporation. So the left party, Die Linke, demands that rescue packages are being linked to social and ecological conditions. So the opposite is the case. Um, so there's no cancellation, for example, of domestic flights. Um, and um, the Lufthansa just announced two days ago um, to lay off more than 20,000 workers. So um, I think it's very important to, to understand um, the, the character um, um, of, of, of these programs. But even um, if you take an account that, of course, um, yeah, some effect is also um, good for the working class, um, you have to see that all these programs can't solve the underlying capitalist crisis. As Michael Roberts says, that unlikely because um, the, the profitability like, um, will remain low, so the expected future profit rate, while at the same time, the debt is rising, fueled by a huge borrowing. The capitalist economies will continue to be depressed and will eventually be replaced by rising inflation so that this new phase of depression will turn into a stagflation. So therefore, besides the bailout, the increase of the exploitation rate is central for capital in order to increase their profits. And this is seen also in Germany, attacks by the bosses um, um, are intended to, um, to, as well as the economic package of the government, to caution the crisis for capital and to emerge stronger from international competition. So last week, uh, the Employers Association of the Metal Industry summarized um, what is necessary from their point of view. Um, um, and this sounds to, to us like a social political declaration of war. 
they want the termination of the equal financing of the health insurance, like by the bosses and the workers. They attack on pensions. Um, they want um, um, unlimited flexible working hours. And at the same time, um, there is no um, demand, of course, for companies in social burden sharing, um, which, um, or for example, wealth or inheritance um, taxes. In the eyes of the German capital, the state is welcome as a financial helper, but should not be entitled to limit corporate interest. Um, and um, well, even though they can't not, uh, they're not getting away with it now, I think it's important to see that they, um, yeah, what they are saying and what their plans are. Um, if you look at the government at the moment, um, you have to know that the Merkel government um, has very high approval rates at the moment. Um, short time work um, and aid for small and medium sized business have led to a, um, to a great support. Um, um, and so, uh, yeah, for example, we have 7.3 million um, um, short time workers in Germany because of the um, short time work decisions the government um, take um, and um, well so this is first of all was a relief but of course people know don't know what is um, what is coming in the future time so unemployment could soon rise about the three million mark which is a lot if you compare the situation how it was before um, we know in the long run they want to make the working class to pay for the crisis and so um, building protest against the coming crisis um, um, is very crucial for us. Um, what does the left and the left party? Um, well, first of all, parts of Die Linke, the left um, party, and also the trade union leaderships took some time to orient themselves in the new situation. And uh, we still have the problem, especially in trade unions, um, of a policy of truce, uh, like they try to to um, yeah, to gain something by making deals with the with the government um, and not really fighting um, um, the unsocial and unjust measures, and so um, we are preparing at the moment to strike back against um, passing the crisis on the working class, although. Um, 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 the restrictions we had, uh, the social distancing made it very difficult. There have been protests by nurses for better pay and better working conditions. There have, has been, for example, a strike against the closure of an automotive supplier in southern Germany. And they had um, protests against the horrible working conditions in the slaughter industry where workers from Eastern Europe toil under disastrous conditions. Um, and some of these slaughterhouses um, had become hotspots of the corona virus. virus. Um, so um, we want to develop these um, so far isolated protests into a general crisis pro protest. And um, I think it's very important to demand that people uh, come before profits. Um, the fight for solidarity um, and for a solid solidarity response to the crisis must be um, also a fight against the right wing and the neo-fascist responses and must not allow racists to blame scapegoats um, for the crisis. Um, in Germany, we have a special situation which is also reflected in the corona crisis. In um, recent years, we have seen a number of racist movements. Um, the, race, the, the, the rise of the AFD, alternative for Germany, 
as a fascist party in the making and encouraged by this a series of right-wing terrorist murders. Um, at the same time, we have seen how widespread anti-fascist and anti-racist movements have formed. And um, the AFD as a reservoir of the extreme right has been put on the defensive by mass anti-fascist and anti-racist protests since 2018. So um, the AFD first reacted to the corona crisis by blaming refugees for the bringing in of the virus and, and demanding what it always demands, border closures. So when it became clear that this wouldn't work or would, wouldn't give them support, it started to mobilize against the lockdown. Um, so this is the situation we have. This didn't work out very well as well. So at the moment, um, the open fascist and the right-wing nationalist wings are fighting for influence in the AFD. And while some want to build up a national socialist movement party, others want to achieve their political goals through a coalition government with the CDU, with the conservatives. So the question how strong the right wing is will also depend on the struggle and mobilizations of the coming weeks and months. So it will be crucial to organize struggles against the consequences of the coming crisis and the Black Lives Matter protest in which 100,000 to 200,000 people participated last week and in Germany show similar to the climate movement before and the massive anti-racist and anti-fascist mobilizations, a great potential for left-wing movement. So we are um, um, part of this movement and let's argue for a broad internationalist anti-racist response to the COVID-19 pandemic, breaking with the logic of capitalism, which subordinates the needs of human and nature to the profit. Thank you. Thank you so much, Christine. Um, that was really interesting. And again, apologies for putting you on the spot um, and making you go first. Of course, we're all still getting used to uh, these new networks that we're streaming on and technical, um, technical difficulties. So just before I introduce our next speaker, I'd like to say that it is absolutely amazing that we've got people watching from Bangladesh, Sweden, Kenya, South Korea, and many other parts of the world. So please do keep sharing the link for the stream. And also please do keep asking questions in the comment section below because there will be an opportunity to hear from all of our speakers and we really wanna hear from you as well. Um, of course, I did mention that we had Yanis from the US and naturally with everything that's going on in the US, we are eager to hear from him, but we will be hearing from him shortly. Firstly, I'm going to introduce our next speaker who is Baba Ai. Baba is the editor of Socialist Worker in Nigeria. He's a member of the SWL there, and he is also co-convener of the Coalition for Revolution. You've got 10 minutes, just like Christine did. So I'd like to pass over to you, Baba, because we're so eager to hear from you. So over to you. All right. Thank you very much, Sophia. Uh, I would want to start by recalling um, the response of the anthropologist, Margaret Mead, to the question from a student about when could we say, what were the earliest evidence of civilization? The student was expecting the response of, you know, physical things like pots and pans, but she said it goes back to 15,000 years back in, in present-day Turkey, where you found that a person had been treated, had been taken care of from femoral wounds, broken femoral that healed. So 
a lot can be said about how civilized the society is, not only by how it takes care of people that need care, but how it relates with those that take care of people. And if we look at how health and social care workers have been treated, particularly over the past couple of decades, it shows how barbaric capitalism is, and in particular, neoliberalism. Uh, since the 2007-2009 Great Recession, in virtually every region of the world, you have seen sharp, sharp cuts in funding of healthcare. You have had caps on employment. You have had freezings, which, which effectively mean reduction in, in, in the wages of health workers. And most importantly, you have had little consideration for the health of healthcare workers. Um, now the government are joining people in applauding health workers, but they fail to point out that the reason why you don't have adequate personal protective equipment is because of cuts in funding. And it is also about preference. It's, you see, it's not enough to um, take what governments say quite often on international institutions, but look at what they fund, look at what they actually give such support to. A, a good thing looking at, well, a bad, good example, so to speak. You saw um, anti-riot police cracking down in the, in the United States recently and across the world, but it cost what it cost to do just one police officer's body armor would produce full, complete personal protective equipment for 31 health workers, up to and including respirators. But what do we have now? You have had at different points in time, the guidelines for personal protective equipment being scaled down. We have been informed that health workers don't need respirators, just a few need it. But when you look at it, the scale down, they always put availability that, okay, even because we trade unions have argued against this. Even the recent WHO guideline pointed out that, okay, we're sticking with no need for respirators for all health workers uh, attending to COVID-19 people, uh, despite trade unions, you know, um, challenging this largely because of availability. It is not about availability. There is much more than enough money. It is that the bosses are interested in profits and the government, are, they serve the interest of these bosses. So the interest of those who deliver care is of less concern as is those of, of, of each and every one uh, of us. They keep saying there is no magic monetary everywhere, but we know that some 36 trillion US dollars are in tax havens and they let this go. But we know that during this current pandemic, a few billionaires, their wealth has expanded by over $530 billion. So it is not about lack of funds. It is that the funding is not uh, meant to protect lives, to make lives better. Uh, and you see, despite the fact that way back 72 years ago, when the World Health Organization was formed, uh, the right to enjoy the highest, you know, uh, attainable quality of health was, was considered a fundamental human right. And uh, you see a lot of laudable statements subsequently. You have had uh, uh, water for all by 1990, health for all by year 2000, 
Millennium Development Goals, Sustainable Development Goals. As Arundhati Roy put it very articulately, I mean, this mask intent, they mask the intent of keep us of, of keeping us from demanding the year and now of system change, you know, with the illusion of that, okay, probably gradually, you know, they have to, they want to really, but all that is crap. And that is part of what this, um, this pandemic has put right there in the face uh, uh, of also. Coming to uh, the, the situation in Africa, uh, some have said, well, you, you have... Um, it's yes, it's 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 least affected. But behind all this is the fact that Africa, and this is why there was great fear about the pandemic, you know, going well, <laughs> pardon the pun, viral uh in Africa, is that decades of neocolonialism, decades of you know, privatization, deregulation, and commercialization have left the public health system across the continent in tatters, much more than anywhere else. You know, when we look at neoliberalism, we're thinking of, of its commencement with Margaret Thatcher and um, Ronald Reagan. But it is also important to remember that the international financial institutions beginning to drive it started with the 1981 report of the World Bank, you know, which was the first place where it openly called for, you know, user fees for healthcare services, despite realizing, you know, the state of poverty on the continent, which had grown even from there, by then from bad to worse, and from now from worse to easy, if there's any word like that, was test and it is still i mean uh, just beginning with the crisis ahead the crisis ahead it's 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 not just a public health emergency it's a social and economic you know crisis globally and uh, in different dimensions and different regions in in africa for example talking of the lockdown in uh in a region we are also like in south asia the bulk of the labor force are in the informal economy where you have to go out daily to earn a living, you know, uh, has been disastrous in so many ways. It has been disastrous. Uh, and, and this has thrown up what should be um, the, the, the position on, on lockdowns. It's, it's, but, but it goes deeper than that. And why does it go deeper than that? Part of the reasons, the central reason why the informal economy people are facing and not only them, even in the formal sector, already you have had sharp, in, in, in Nigeria, for example, the, the Board of uh, Commerce has said that 85% of the corporations are going to sharply cut you know, their workforce and or the wages of, of workers there. So the, the, the problem now is that it is not just about that people irk their living daily. It is that these different countries, despite the level of poverty as a whole, they have enough wealth, which are in the hands of a few people, to provide social protection, even for those that are in the informal economy. And this we must demand. The five richest Africans have as much wealth as 50% of the population on that continent. This is unacceptable. And measures that have been taken by governments have rather been more tilted towards, you know, helping boost the, the, the profit-seeking aims of these corporations as well as multinational uh, corporations. So it is of utmost importance that we demand, you know, we take action, we organize, you know, uh, for, for a different way, uh, for, for putting, you know, people's health 
you know, before corporations wealth, for putting people over profit. And this requires, you know, mass struggle. And this has been, you know, you have had demonstrations, you have had strikes, and it is important that most of the strikes you have had have been wildcat strikes. That is to say, there have been strikes that have been organized, you know, in defiance, you know, in some situations of the official trade union bureaucracy. But we need to have more of fight back of such. And this fight back should be clear. It should be clear about that. Look, we are not just asking for some reforms. We are not asking for cosmetic improvement. We are asking for fundamental systemic change. And that requires revolutionary triumph of the working class people and youth in the struggles coming ahead. Thank you. Thank you so much, Barbara. I really enjoyed listening to that. It was an absolutely great and very passionate 10 minutes from you. I'm very happy to announce as well that our technical difficulties hopefully are now over. We do have Yanis Delatolas with us, who is live from the USA. Obviously, very exciting times that's been going on in America right now. Yanis is a member of Marx 21 in the USA. Um, he was due to start us off, but being third speaker is never a problem. So over to you, Yanis, 10 minutes, um, and we're very excited to hear from you. Okay, comrades, um, let's hope for the best. I hope this works. Uh, there is a, a photo of a nurse from a recent demonstration that has been going around the Internet. Uh, she is holding a sign that reads, we fought COVID, now we will fight the police. This image really captures what is happening in the United States today. Race and class are central in this anti-racist rebellion. There have been demonstrations in all major cities and even in small towns with no history of protests whatsoever. Even in the U.S. South, in Texas, like uh, Alabama, Tennessee, and many other uh, cities. Curfews have been imposed and curfews have been ignored and defied as thousands have taken to the streets uh, to protest. There is a feeling that we cannot go back. And overnight, uh, what used to be the demands of the radical left uh, seem to have uh, become mainstream. Uh, so, uh, things such as uh, defund police, uh, abolish even the police. The, the politicians, uh, the Democrats mostly, are rushing to catch up to the movement with uh, promises of reform. The mayor of New York City declared that he will uh, cut back the funding for the police uh, in the New York Police Department. I mean, I, I used to be with other comrades part of uh, uh, a campaign in the early 1990s in New York where one of our demands was to slash the police budget. So just to show you an idea how powerful this uh, movement has been only in a matter of uh, a couple of weeks or so. Um, in Minneapolis, the city council has pledged to abolish the police because it cannot be reformed. Uh, this is the kind of things that, you know, revolutionary socialists say about the nature of the state. Of course, we're not going to uh, believe that the ruling class is going to do away with the police, especially at a time of uh, such a rebellion. But again, it's a testament to the, the, the force and power of this movement that has uh, so quickly uh, been able to get these concessions from, uh, from the authorities and the state. Um, last week in El Paso, in an ICE detention center, 
there was a, a, a hunger strike by the immigrants who have been detained based in a prison awaiting deportation. It was in solidarity with uh, George Floyd. Um, it's a tremendous act of uh, solidarity and a show of internationalism. Uh, and it also, also shows uh, another way in which the rebellion can be deepened by linking up with the uh, immigrant rights movement and the anti-ICE campaign. Um, but in order to understand this rebellion now, we have to, to look at the uh, Black Lives uh, Matter movement that um, erupted under the Obama administration. Uh, and also uh, the longer term struggle of black people fighting for liberation in the United States that goes back to the civil rights era uh, and protests to Mar Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and uh, the more militant developments of the movement into revolutionary organizations like DRUM, Detroit Revolutionary Union Movement, and the Black, the black Panther Party. Even though I will not address this here, it is worthwhile to keep them in mind as examples of a rich uh, radical tradition of uh, black people's struggle for emancipation in the United States. The Black Lives Matter movement that erupted under the Obama years uh, in 2013 um, was caused by uh, an unwillingness uh, of uh, Obama and his administration to address the problem of racist police murder. Uh, back uh, in 2013, uh, the murder of Trayvon Martin was acquitted, and shortly after came the murder of Eric Garner and Michael Brown uh, by racist cops who also walked free. Black Lives Matter exploded in the United States. There were huge demonstrations all over the country. There was a demonstration in New York of some 50,000 people. There were protests in Europe. The current um, anti-racist rebellion uh, has a deeper political right, uh, radicalization than those protests back then. It's more insurrectionary, confrontational. Police stations have been burned and raided. Uh, at this very moment in Seattle, uh, in the Capitol Hill area, a police precinct has been taken over by protesters and the police were forced to, to abandon it. Um, uh, this is called the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, and uh, socialist uh, councilwoman uh, Kashama Sawant led a march there and has introduced uh, legislation to keep the area uh, under community uh, control. Um, also very important in rebellion uh, has been the entry of organized labor. Uh, from the start, uh, with statements of solidarity uh, from the nurses' union, uh, the steel workers' union, uh, the flight attendants' union. Um, recently in DC, we even saw a picket outside the uh, AFL CIO building uh, by the International Union of Painters and uh, Allied Trades. Um, picketing in solidarity with Black Lives Matter and also because the AFL CIO has not expelled so-called police unions. Uh, so the ruling class in the United States is very worried about these developments. Trump, in order to split this United movement, 
as a, a declared Antifa terrorist, um, which is actually a, a, a dubious thing because Antifa is not an organization. Uh, there is no thing. It's a loose net of anti-fascist activists who maybe don't have the best politics uh, in terms of dealing a blow to the far right. Um, but nevertheless, this is not the fight, uh, uh, his, uh, which is his basically his electoral base. Uh, and it was meant to be an attack on the left and this movement. A split, however, has opened up in the ruling class as uh, uh, generals and top military officials have come out to denounce Trump's offer, the army deployed to states to put down the rebellion. Um, and also there have been splits at the base of the military with uh, guys and uh, National Guardsmen refusing uh, to be uh, deployed to deal with the protesters. But regardless of what generals say, those are really people, as we know, uh, Trump is still very dangerous because he emboldens the far right and the fascists. We have seen already far supporters and fascists um, driving to demonstrations, injuring people, uh, killed a man in Detroit, etc. It is also uh, very important to keep in mind that this rebellion is coming uh, in, in the midst of a pandemic where local and federal government uh, inaction allowed spread of COVID-19 to go uncontrolled and unmonitored. There were no tests to be seen in New York City at the height of the pandemic. Nurses didn't have personal protective equipment. There were basically no tests to go around until very late in the, in, in the crisis. Um, so the, if you have up where COVID-19 uh, took its greatest toll, in New York City, you will see that those are the working class areas of Queens and the Bronx. Um, and the reason for this, of course, was that um, the, these are mostly uh, um, poor working class neighborhoods of um, blacks and Latinos. A lot of them are undocumented workers who did not qualify for the 1,200 stimulus that the government sent. Therefore, they had no ability to stay home. Also, they were the essential workers that kept the city running during this crisis. Uh, and then we had the uh, Governor Cuomo, who everybody looked at as supposedly he was some kind of hero. Well, he acted too late. Teachers Union had to force the governor and the mayor to shut down the schools. And outrageous as it is, even at the height of the pandemic, almost last May, passed a, a, an austerity package. Um, uh, and Medicaid is the, the program that the, the, the poorest and the people with, um, you know, serious health problems rely on. So in other words, the people who were the hardest hit COVID-19 these are the people who, who rely on Medicaid. So this anger from the lack of response to COVID-19, 
20% unemployment rate right now. 1930s like crisis. All this fueled the rebellion. And there's one more thing that I think is very important to discuss politically. The defeat of the Sanders campaign has angered millions of people who were looking to Bernie for solutions. Of course, it was a social democratic campaign. It had very limitations on traditions, but its political importance, I think, should not be underestimated. And it's this defeat of the, of the campaign that I think a lot of people who had Bernie are now in the protests. Um, so the entry of unions and workers in this rebellion can ensure jeopardy and the thinning of the of the movement. Um, and we have seen already postal workers march in Minneapolis from the very beginning of the the earlier banner that's postal workers demand justice for George Floyd. Bus workers um, in New York and Minneapolis have refused to transfer uh, protesters uh, arrested at the protests. Uh, dock workers in California have voted to shut down 29 West Coast ports on June 19th. So they with the rebellion. And teacher unions across the country have kicked the police out of the classrooms. Uh, and I think these are all exciting uh, times. Uh, and socialists have a very real role to play here uh, to point out that this rebellion can serve as a start, a big challenge to, to racism and also to capitalism and for a movement uh, that can actually uh, deliver social justice for immigrants, for all the oppressed. Um, and I believe that um, the workers' uh, input in this is, is crucial in the character. And I believe in this period that we are in, there are a lot of uh, possibilities and exciting developments uh, at hand. Thank you so much, Yanis. I'm sure we can all agree it's incredibly exciting what's going on in the US at the moment. Um, and we're really happy that we were able to hear from you. So thank you. Just before I introduce our last speaker, I'd also like to mention we've also got people streaming us live from Russia, Argentina, South Africa, Brazil, Portugal and Ireland. Um, it's absolutely amazing to see how far and wide people are watching our stream. So I'd like to once again, finally, just remind people, please do continue to share the link, but also so please do comment any uh, questions or comments you may have for our speakers as like I said there will be time for us to hear from you the audience so it'd be absolutely great if we could have questions from those places as well um, without further ado I'm going to introduce our last but by no means least speaker it's Joseph Chunara who is the editor of the International Socialism Journal and also a member of the Socialist Workers Party here in Britain so over to you Joseph. Thanks, Sophia. And I want to start with the question that Yanis was discussing. Why is it that the death of George Floyd has now triggered a global rebellion? Uh, we've had protests in 67 countries. We have statues of slave traders being ripped down in Bristol, as the chair of this meeting said, uh, in London. We have millions internationally on the streets. Now, the killing was, was brutal. To see video of someone having their windpipe crushed by a police officer's knee for nine minutes is horrifying. 
But we also have to understand this as an accumulation of brutality. Uh, last year in the United States, uh, 1,098 people were killed and black people were three times more likely to die at the hands of police than white people. And this is not confined to America. Here in Britain, someone dies after contact with the police roughly once a week, disproportionately here as well, black and minority people. And when you hear that in Britain, there's not been a successful prosecution of any police officer for this since 1969, in other words, over half a century, you begin to understand that this is not just a case of a few rotten apples in the barrel, as people say, the whole barrel itself stinks of putrefaction. The state is permeated by racism, official racism from the top down. And in this context, it's no surprise at all that in their demand for justice, some of those on the streets are following the path of Angela Davis and Malcolm X, who identify the whole system of the, as the problem and start to call for revolutionary change, what Davis called a complete and total overthrow of the capitalist class. This is the kind of movement we're experiencing now on a global scale. And of course, this rage is deepened by the impact of COVID-19. As I've argued for, for many months now, what COVID-19 is doing is sharpening all the antagonisms and contradictions of the capitalist system. And people see this, people see a sick racist system that puts, people's, uh, puts profits of business before people's lives and brutalizes anyone who gets in the way of that. And so the cry, I can't believe, I can't breathe, which comes from Black Lives Matter uh, protesters, equally applies to the victims of COVID-19, the nurses, the bus drivers, the supermarket workers who we've seen die in their scores in Britain, who are also overwhelmingly poor and black. We've seen in the last 24 hours here in Britain the British Medical Association writing a letter to the government demanding to know why, in an official report on COVID-19, the pages dealing with black and minority ethnic deaths have simply been removed. And once you begin to look at the figures, you understand that in Britain, black people are four times more likely to die than white of COVID-19, and South Asian people like myself twice as likely as white people to die. Now, there's been speculation that this is due to some kind of genetic predisposition. We have no need for that theory. Uh, black people are incomparably more likely to be in frontline work, more likely to be in squalid, overcrowded housing, and more likely to suffer all the stress and anxiety of racism and poverty. And this is why people are dying disproportionately. And after age, ethnicity and class are the key determinant of who lives and who dies. And we should say that, the, as Yanis said, the antagonisms will deepen. If you look at America, Donald Trump realizes the state of the US economy, with its 40 million uh, un extra unemployed, is not gonna propel him back to the White House in the autumn. So he's going back to a 2016 playbook of ratcheting up the tension, mobilizing his base of support around racism and nationalism. And again, this is not confined to America. You look at Bolsonaro's Brazil, or you look at the Modi government in India, uh, you begin to see this same pattern of mobilizing racism and nationalism in the face of crisis. And as the crisis deepens, we're going to see much more of this globally. We're also learning something else from these struggles.
We're learning that a few days of mass protest can accomplish more than decades of polite negotiation or electoral campaigns. Because people took to the streets, the accomplices of Officer Chauvin, who killed George Floyd, will now be charged in the US. Because people mobilized on the streets, because people protested in Minneapolis, the existing police force is being disbanded. And everywhere now you're getting these calls to defund the police, which we hope are going to crystallize into a movement for, an, for the abolition of the whole racist system of policing and incarceration as the left has demanded for many, many years. Now I'd like to look at the broader context of COVID-19 that is fueling these processes. Because what we're seeing uh, in the pandemic is not some incursion of nature into society from the outside. It's not some act of God. Viruses like coronaviruses crossed from, from animal populations into human society through the penetration of capital into nature, through the transformation of nature into commodity in the search of profit. Whether it comes through big agribusiness or whether it comes through the wider ecological destruction of capitalism. And as these viruses enter society, we see how the response of governments reflects the priorities of their system. So things have been particularly bad in countries like Britain and America, uh, where we've seen uh, really neoliberalism intensify this capitalist logic. So for example, if you look at Britain, something like half the deaths have come in care homes. Why has this happened? Because there's been no proper system of testing and tracing. Infected people were discharged from hospitals and sent back into care homes. And care homes have been run according to a cost-cutting logic for decades and were completely unprepared to protect people from the consequences. This is the cutting edge of the impact of the virus, but you see the logic of capitalism at work everywhere. Everywhere around the globe now, there is pressure to reopen workplaces in a competitive battle to restore the flow of profits. It's bad enough in Europe, but in countries like Brazil and India, this great reopening of business comes as death rates are still growing exponentially. And the US government seems to have just completely given up on trying to control uh, the virus. There will be huge numbers of deaths in Brazil, India, and the US and elsewhere. And we know that in countries like the UK and Germany and elsewhere, there'll be a second piece, peak of, uh, of cases if they get away with this. And here too, we have to say we can fight. If you look at Britain, the NEU, the major school teaching union, is one of the few unions to take an absolutely clear position. The government decided in Britain to reopen primary schools in order to allow parents to go back to work. The NEU union says, we'll go back to work if and only if you meet our conditions on safety. The union organized, it held an online meeting of trade union activists that was 20,000 strong, I suspect, the biggest union organizing uh, meeting in history. On June the 1st, the government tried to open the primary schools, and I'm pleased to say that only one quarter of primary school students have returned. In other words, the government plans are in tatters because of resistance from below, from teachers and from parents. We need much more of this. This is part of a fight, from, from, from my point of view, to shift the frontier of control in our workplaces, to determine who decides whether it's safe to reopen them and ultimately how these workplaces should be run. And just as we need, as Yanis says, 
organize labor as part of the Black Lives Matter movement, we also need the spirit of the Black Lives Matter movement in our multiracial workplaces. If we can tear down uh, statues that are a racist affront to our dignity, we should also be able to confront the bosses who want to degrade and devalue our lives. This is the struggle we're part of now. And this isn't just about fighting the immediate impact of COVID-19. It's about building up the strength of our movement for the struggles to come. If you look at the impact of COVID-19, this is now triggered by far the deepest economic crisis of our lifetimes. The whole system since 2008-2009 has been kept afloat by cheap credit, quantitative easing and bailouts. But now the zombie firms that were kept alive in this way are beginning to fail. And as the economic devastation unfolds, it's forcing through levels of state intervention never seen before outside wartime. What we're getting, in other words, is socialism for the bosses and capitalism for the workers. When big business goes under, they offer a safety net through corporate handouts and government backed loans. But who's going to pay for this? We can guarantee there'll be struggles ahead, just as when they bailed out the banking system 10 years ago. The very last point I want to make is about the politics that we need. Because the more that the revolt from below grows, the more it shines a light on the limitations of the sections of the mainstream left. Here in Britain, we have a new leader of the Labour Party, Sir Keir Starmer. And when the protesters like Sophia toppled a statue in Bristol of the slave owner Edward Coulson and dumped it in the harbour, he said that they were completely wrong to do so. I can only assume from this that Starmer believes the statue should be dredged up, re-elected on its plinth, and a committee formed to politely discuss the matter for the next 10 or 20 years. But it's not just this. Starmer also criticised the government for not having a plan to reopen the schools. Uh, he's uh, flying in the face of the best people in our movement who want to protect the working class. We see similar things in the US, where you see Joe Biden, the Democratic Party candidate, now Bernie Sanders has been stitched up by the establishment, they're saying that we should train police to shoot people in the legs rather than the head. And then he goes on to say, if you don't vote for me, you just ain't black. This isn't good enough politically. Uh, in the Spanish state, similarly, we see Podemos, a radical left party, as part of a governing coalition involved in reopening the economy. Now, I understand why people look to these organisations. I'm not a sectarian. I'm happy to fight alongside anyone who supports these organisations if they want to engage in the struggle over racism and over the impact of COVID-19. But we urgently need a politics that does not accept these limitations, the limitations of what capital will tolerate. We need an anti-capitalist politics because capitalism is now leading us into a triple crisis. The immediate threat of pandemic disease, the long-term threat of economic depression, and the deeper, longer still, still threat of ecological crisis. And we should remember before COVID-19, how the year began. Bushfires in Australia, the Brazilian rainforest burning, floods in Indonesia, and now locust swarms at threatening famine in Africa, alongside the plague of COVID-19 and economic meltdown. There's something very apocalyptic in the air at the moment. And we have to understand it's a system of capitalism, the system of competitive profit making that links and shapes all these processes. 
So the boundaries of what our movements demand should not be set by the limits of what capitalism will tolerate. We need to argue for a democratically controlled system which produces to meet human needs. And we believe that that solution, that socialist solution, can only be achieved through the revolutionary transformation of society from below. And those are the politics of international socialist tendency. If you share and sympathize with those, those politics, please join us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joseph. And once again, another thank you to all of our speakers. We're now going to have a round of questions. Um, I will ask them all, I will ask all three of the questions and then go to our speakers in the same order that they spoke. There is one second question which is directed at Christine in Germany, but um, the other speakers won't necessarily need to comment on that. So I'm just going to read the questions out for the audience and also for, for the speakers. Our first question is from Gieki Tano in Ghana. Um, Gieki says, you also talked about strikes and the global explosion of Black Lives Matter in the streets. As a revolutionary socialist, who's also an elected member of parliament, what do you see as the relationship between these and what should the priorities be for ordinary people? He then goes on to ask, should we be focusing on voting better representatives in to bring change on our behalf, be it in parliament or the unions, for example? The second question we have is from Feline in Canada. This is directed at Christine. Feline says that, she saw that there were very large protests in Germany in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter in the US. It was reported that they were the biggest demos outside of the US itself. Feline was wondering if Christine could comment on that organising. And our last question for this round is from Tony in Britain. Tony says that the London police have created a curfew from 5pm in central London, effectively using the COVID-19 emergency laws to shut down anti-fascist protests. How can socialist protest when COVID-19 restrictions make it more difficult? Uh, that was news from me, Tony. So uh, thank you for asking that question. I'm going to go back uh, to our speakers in the order that they spoke. So, Christine, over to you first. OK, thank you very much. Um, so I start off um, with a question about, um, um, yeah, is it more important to, to vote the right people or not? So I think it is absolutely crucial. And, um, and the protests at the moment give you an example of this, that it is um, the, the change doesn't come um, from the parliaments or from um, the state institutions. This change comes from um, social and working class movements fighting for their rights. So, um, as I understand, my role um, um, in in Parliament is um, to first of all um, um, uh, challenge um, the the politics um, of uh, of the government, but also, for example, the the um, the racist uh, hate speech um, of the fascists in Parliament, and to encourage people to um, to fight for their rights to get more arguments about. Um, the the links between the situation in Germany and also um, the the situation we have in other countries, like um, Baba um, explained um, the um, the bad um, um, consequences um, in for a working class life in Nigeria caused um, by the structural adjustment programs and the neo imperialist um, politics um, of the West. We're, 
which, for example, Germany is a part of economically, but um, but also militarily. So um, this is the role of um, um, I uh, I see uh, yeah, revolutionaries and socialists can play this um, role, um, and at the same time, it is the key task to encourage people to um, to organize, to get organized, to fight for their rights and for their own. Um, interest. To the second question about uh, the Black Lives Matter movement in Germany, um, why it is so so big. Um, so um, I think there's one um, one simple reason. We have a huge problem of racism in Germany too. Um, in, in in February um, 19th, um, there was a um, killing of um, um, nine um, migrant um, people in Hanau. It's a small city near to Frankfurt. Um, by um, um, a racist and fascist um, um, who was encouraged by the by the um, yeah racist uh, speeches um, and the example for example of the Christchurch um, killer um, and um, and was shooting down uh, people um, in in into shisha bars um, and this uh, had a big response. Um, um, in the migrant community, but not also in the migrant community, but also in in, in broader society, um, and um, this uh, this experience of racism um, against um, black people, the racism um, against Muslims. So every uh, twice a week, there's an attack on a mosque or um, a re representative um, of the Muslim Muslim religion in, in Germany. Um, there are on a daily basis um, um, attacks um, on on Muslims, but most of them don't um, are not reported to the police because the experience is that um, nothing happens, and so this experience um, um, is the the background uh, on which um, the the Black Lives Matter protest um, um, yeah was was taken up, um, and it was really marvelous. I have been in in, in Berlin in the demonstration last um, Saturday, and so people were just just uh, yeah streaming um, um, to to a central place and many many young many um, obviously unorganized people coming and I think this is um, so the this is the, the background is um, and the racism we have here and so we want to to take these people together in in further fights against racism and the and the fascist um, and, and the fascist right and want to um, um, yeah, to to stand together in in fighting not only um, um, racism in the U.S. but um, racism in Germany as well. Um, this brings me to the last question about mobilizing under um, COVID nineteen. So it was in in the beginning we had many discussions about this, and for example, we called as left party to small. Um, 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 actions on the 1st of May because the trade unions didn't do anything on the streets. They just had um, virtual protests. And so we stood with a, in the distance of two meters um, with a restricted number of people um, on a square and having speeches and having um, having banners and, and trying to, to show that there's a um, there's an opposition to um, to to the way the Merkel government is um, um, is implementing um, um, the the answers to to COVID nineteen a left wing answer because we had right wing answers um, as well um, and so I think now it's um, we're getting more um, more experience tomorrow for example there's a um, protest in many cities um, um, in solidarity with those who suffer from 
um, from the measures, measures um, against the, the, the COVID-19 crisis and also an anti-racist um, protest where people um, stand um, or have a yeah, have a big role through different cities and stand with a distance of two meters to each other. And um, so there are small speeches as well. And we try to develop um, new forms of um, of protest. And I think this is important to um, also encourage uh, workers um, and, um, um, and and the in the in the fights in the workplaces because I think this is very important. We have to to reach people um, in the workplaces and have to support those um, struggles that are emerging and there are struggles emerging um, and to help them to, to win. Great stuff. Thank you for being so succinct and answering those questions so clearly, Christine. Thank you. Um, same questions, same format. You've got a few minutes, so I'm going to go straight to Baba to answer the questions now. Uh, well, thank you very much. Um, well, first, um, I think JJ's question um, raises uh, what should be the response of uh, how should socialists uh, uh, look at electoral uh, politics? Uh, first and foremost, for us, as um, Christine rightly said, change doesn't come from parliament itself. I mean, deep structural changes have always arose because people rose. You know, uh, however, that I believe should not uh, um, mean that while the preference, while the priority is on uh, walk in the street, that um, we discountenance uh, electoral, not electoralist politics, but being involved where we can. But the issue also of being involved directly in electoral politics is more of a tactical one than one of principles. And um, it's usually also about how. I mean, for example, in the United States, talking concretely, the idea of uh, less evilism, support for the democratic, uh, the Democrats, I believe, is I mean, sophisticated nonsense. And uh, you, you look at let's relate it to the issue of uh, or the issue at hand regarding uh, the anti-racist movement. The Democrats played key role, you know, in incarceration uh, of of blacks, in in criminalization. I mean, uh, of blacks. In, 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 in barely 30 years, seeing the, the number of people in prisons rising from um, some 350,000 to over 2 million. I mean, Bill Clinton played a key role in this. And what did he have to say when Hillary was contesting and some Black Lives Matter uh, activists raised this? I mean, in, 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 with such blatant arrogance, he was saying the people they jailed were those that were selling drugs to blacks like themselves, those that were killing blacks like themselves. But he forgets the structural questions. He forgets the fact that well, you can't defend it that while you have black males in America being barely um 6.5 percent of the population over 40 percent of those in prison are black males and he, he, he consciously did not look at the the generational poverty you know and racism that as right from the slave trade period till every throughout even through the civil rights movement you know that blacks have had to face you know, black working class people in particular in, in the United States of, of parts of North America. So we need to show these threads, you know, be it on the ballot line or and more importantly, uh, outside it. And then talking about the global spread, I think one thing is important to note here. There are two key issues that have arisen uh, from the uprising sparked in, uh, uh, in Minneapolis. Two things, anti-racism, 
and anti-police brutality. And when you look at the global struggle, not the global rising, not only have um, there been risings in support of, you know, uh, the movement against racism in the United States with the killing of George Floyd as a spark, but in different countries, the masses have also pointed out and stood against racism historically and contemporarily in, in, in these different countries. In, in, in Australia, Aboriginal rights have also been put at the fore, where tens of thousands of people have moved in Sydney, in Melbourne, in Victoria, in, 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 in Britain. I mean, you've seen the, the, the bringing out of Custom's uh, statue and so on and so forth. And, and, and in a sense to me, that was a sharp response to the nonsense Gordon Brown said some years back that, I mean, the time of Britain apologizing for colonialism is, is long gone. But I mean, that is nonsense on stilts, not only as the heritage of such colonialism continued under neocolonialism, it didn't even just start with former colonialism. It goes way back, you know, to, to, to the transatlantic slave trade. And talking of colonialism, it is not accidental that, you know, Africa could move only so far before the onslaught of neoliberalism. While in the wake of World War II in, the, in North America, in Europe, you were having um, wealthyism, welfare states emerging, calcium, the, the, the Keynesian system coming. Africa was still a body of colonies and it was pillaged. I, can, I mean, one can say that monies sifted out from Africa in those periods contributed to, to building the, the NHS in Britain. You know, so for, for him to have said that these kind of things are quite clear response to it. And also even in Africa, in Africa, it has been tied more to the issue of police brutality in, in Kenya, in Nigeria, in South Africa. And in South Africa, it has also been used to, to point out that despite the, the end of you know, formal apartheid, you know, blacks and black working class people in particular are still getting the short end of the stick, not only economically, but in terms of being killed, you know. So these, these are titans that are, are, what is important now is tying the, connecting the dots, you know, to show the structural problems at hand and the need for deep, thoroughgoing systemic change, which will be brought through, brought out through our mass struggle through working class and youth fight on the streets, you know, in the workplaces and so on and so forth to bring to bat a new world. As used to be said, another world is possible, but we must fight for that. Thank you. Thank you, Baba. That was absolutely brilliant. Um, really well done for answering all of those questions. It was great. So again, same three questions. Hopefully our speakers remember them. I'm going to go straight over to Yanis. Similar amount of time, about five minutes to answer the questions. Yes. Um, uh, a little bit on the question of whether we can vote politicians who uh, we'll be able to deal with uh, the issue of racist violence and the police and police reform, I guess, in essence. Um, I think if we look at the what I mentioned in my presentation, that Black Lives Matter uh, came into being during the Obama era. Of course, you know, it, Obama's victory was really a historic event. Um, considering the role racism plays in the United States. Um, but uh, 
it was really shocking, I think, to a lot of us, even those of us who didn't have any illusions in what Obama could achieve, how uh, he did not um, consider the, 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 the requests from the movement to address this, the, the killings, the, the racist killings. He did eventually under a lot of pressure, but it was well below what the movement expected. Uh, and I think it was this, this uh, inability to, uh, to, to tackle this problem, which gave birth to the movement Black Lives Matter. So in many ways, I think this is one of the best examples one can say, bring up to say that whether, you know, we're talking about the police, the question is, is really the police reformable? And it goes into a bigger question about the role of the state. Is the state even reformable? Um, interestingly enough, Bernie recently has uh, pushed back against the idea of defunding the police and has defended having a police force that is well, you know, equipped and with a good budget, etc. Um, so another example, I think, um, of a politician who was progressive, you know, a social democrat who has backed away from the demands of the movement at the moment. So, and even if it was really possible to 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 reform the police, um, if you really look at the makeup of the police and how um, a lot of the the ranks in the ranks, there are a lot of people who who hold really racist ideas or who may be neo Nazis or supporters of the far right, um, you know, the, the question of whether the police can be reformed becomes more of a, of a, you know, a difficulty because this is endemic. I mean, in Greece, even in every country in the world, I think you will see fascists and far right supporters um, and bigots in the ranks of the police. And obviously in the United States, racism is endemic. It is part of the training the police receive when they join the force. So there is no way really to reform the police, in my opinion. And even if it was possible, let's say hypothetically, um, what would happen if there is a strike? You know, the, the ruling class would send in the police to crush the strike. And ultimately, I think this is the role of the police um, in the in under capitalism. That's Great. Thank you, Yanis. We'll have an opportunity to hear from all of our other speakers in our second round of questions. Uh, for matters of time, I'm going to go straight over to Joseph to answer the three questions from our first round. Joseph. Yeah, thank you. I'm just going to focus on two points because I'm aware, you know, we're short of time. Uh, the first is about the nature of protest under COVID-19. I think it's perfectly reasonable for those of us who are participants in these movements to engage in a tactical debate about how we keep vulnerable people uh, safe, how we try and pioneer new uh, socially distanced forms of protest and so on. But we have to do so with a perspective of solidarity with all of those fighting back under whatever circumstances and using whatever tactics that they, they're using. Um, and I think we have to also reject the hypocrisy of sections of the ruling class and their commentators who say that we are putting people in danger uh, by organizing protests at a time when they're trying to, in Britain, 
forced something like 15 million people back into workplaces of 100 plus uh, people. In other words, the extent to which they're threatening people's lives through drawing people together inside workplaces is far greater than anything that the left is doing. But yes, we need to have a discussion about this. Uh, specifically on the question of the curfew in London today, which seems to be uh, enforced against Black Lives Matter far more than it's enforced against the far-right protesters who've gathered in London, I think what it confirms uh, for me is that state bans on protests are not a way of actually curtailing the far-right. Um, now, it's, it, it seems as if many of the organisers within Black Lives Matter decided to move the big demonstration on Saturday uh, in London uh, to Friday because they didn't want to enter into a trap where the state used the fact that there were fascist protesters to attack their demonstration and incarcerate black people. And I understand that logic. But it seems to me one of the arguments we need to be developing now under these circumstances is to say that the way that we're going to beat back the fascist threat ultimately is through mass organisation in the streets, in the workplaces and communities, to stop the fascists from gathering and from marching. That's the tradition stretching back in Britain to the 1970s and the anti-Nazi League, running through organisations like United Against Fascism and Stand Up to, Stand Up to Racism. And it's a tradition of mass mobilisation of anti-racist campaigners, trade unionists and others from below uh, to stop the fascists from gathering, organising and marching. And that's a, a method of, of fighting which has now been generalised to Greece, Germany, Austria, many other countries besides. And I think it's, it's a method that works. So that's an argument we need to start developing, I think, among many of the people who've been radicalised by recent events. Uh, final uh, point on the relationship between Parliament and struggle, between uh, getting people elected and the fight inside the streets, workplaces and the communities. I'm all for socialists partaking in elections. I think it's fantastic, for example, that Christina is in the German Parliament because Christina is a tribune for the oppressed. Uh, she stands up for the oppressed and exploited using that parliamentary platform in order to do so. But I also take seriously uh, what Lenin said about parliaments. He said, parliament is really a big dung heap. You stand on a dung heap to project your voice further, but you don't have illusions in a dung heap. We don't think that change is fundamentally gonna come through the structures of parliament, even though we want to use parliament to amplify the voice of our movement and use elections to do so as well. We think fundamentally change is gonna come through the actions of millions and ultimately billions of people in democratic struggle uh, from below. And I think the left gets it wrong when it says that there are two paths and there are two equal paths. If you look at the tradition, the radical left in Greece, particularly Syriza, which was elected a few years ago, uh, lots of people in Syriza said, we're a radical left formation and we fight both on the parliamentary terrain and in the streets and workplaces. They're equal struggles. But once they get elected to government, you find that they subordinate the struggle in the streets and the workplaces to the needs of parliament and the needs uh, of electoralism and um, essentially seeking to manage a capitalist system. And you get this very radical left party, Syriza, elected to fight against the austerity that at the time was being uh, imposed on the Greek people, instead bending to the will of capital and the European Union and imposing uh, austerity on the Greek people. 
and not surprisingly, Syriza were ultimately thrown out of office. This is a problem for us, and therefore we have to say, yes, we use elections, we use parliament, we use electoral campaigns where we can. This is, a, as Babarai says, a tactical question, but fundamentally, we have to look to movements outside of parliament based on the power that we exercise in the streets and the workplaces and the communities where we're concentrated in the biggest numbers to impose our collective democracy on society and transform it in a far more radical and far-reaching way. Okay, I'll stop there. Thank you, Joseph. Again, thanks to all of our speakers. Um, we've got a final round of questions, so slightly shorter this time. I'd like to maybe ask our speakers to include their final comments uh, in this round of questions and keep their responses brief to about three minutes or so. So our first question is coming from South Korea. The question asker is anonymous, but they say solidarity from South Korea comrades. <clears throat> they ask, what organizations have organized the protests and how have the American socialists been involved in building solidarity with protesters in the US? <clears throat> That's our first question. Our second question is directed at Baba Ai. Someone asked Baba <clears throat> to say something about building in Nigeria in the context of inequality. So if you could touch on that, Baba, that would be great. Our third question is from Sally. Sally asks, where does China fit in? There are still protests against one country, one system in, in Hong Kong. Do you think this resistance will spread to mainland China? That's a very interesting question from Sally. And our final question is from Ingmar. And I think, you know, it's a brilliant question to sum up the great discussion that we've been having this afternoon. Ingmar asks, do you think that a consequence of COVID-19 of Sorry, let me start again. Do you think that a consequence of the COVID-19 crisis will be the end of the politics of neoliberalism? So I am going to reverse the order um, this time. So we're going to go to you, Joseph, first, if that's OK. Um, mm -hmm. And there's the questions. Hopefully you can answer them. Yeah, thank, thanks very much. Um, first of all, on the question of, of China, I mean, one of the features of the current crisis is... Uh, what seems like the complete collapse of American global leadership uh, and a further sort of deepening of the crisis around American imperialism. Uh, with China, uh, China is not going to replace America as a global superpower in, in, in the short term. That's not going to happen. But clearly, China is asserting its authority over bits of the world. And there's clearly uh, a massive tension now between America and China. We have to understand that broader con co context in terms of what's going on. And that's accompanied, of course, by lots of anti-Chinese racism. I work in a university. We have lots of Chinese students in Britain. Lots of them are subject to, to racist attacks in the street. And we should be absolutely clear we oppose any racism and nationalism directed against, uh, against Chinese people uh, in this country. In terms of the struggles taking place, I think we have to say that the struggle in Hong Kong uh, essentially is a, is a broad struggle for some sort of democratic control and ag against oppression and so on. Uh, I support the struggle that's taking place in Hong Kong. Of course, there are different elements to that struggle in Hong Kong. There's a minority current within it that look to American and British imperialism as their allies. I disagree with that. But the broader movement of people who, who are resisting oppression, we stand in solidarity with them. Uh, the great hope for me is that those uh, sort of very militant struggles 
uh, undertaking in, in, in Hong Kong against oppression can somehow in the future connect with the struggles that are taking place in mainland China, which it seems to me have largely so far been over economic questions of things like non-payment of wages and other militant struggles taking place in the workplace. Because if you look at China now, there's a very, very powerful working class that's been created in recent years. And it, it echoes something that Marx wrote back in 1848, that everywhere capitalism uh, grows and develops, it creates their own grave diggers. And the Chinese working class is a very powerful potential grave digger for, for capitalism. And we have to hope that there's some way of forging a link between these militant political struggles taking place in Hong Kong and elsewhere, and the, and the enormous power uh, that has accumulated inside the Chinese working class today. Or as I say, there have been very militant struggles taking place in recent years. Uh, secondly, are we seeing the end of neoliberalism? I, mean, I remember 10 years ago when the 2008-2009 crisis broke, lots of people on the left said what we're seeing is state intervention in the economy and therefore it's the end of neoliberalism uh, and we'll see a new phase of maybe Keynesian intervention in the economy. They were completely wrong. Uh, what you saw in the wake of 2008-2009 was, if anything, a radicalisation of neoliberalism through the imposition of austerity on working class people. And we have to say there is a, a major fear that similar sort of things are going to happen again. And it may be that governments are not particularly keen to impose austerity. I think even in, in Britain, where we have a nasty right wing government under Boris Johnson, it's probably true that Boris Johnson's instinct is that it's not very good electorally to impose another wave of austerity. But the logic of the system may force governments to attack working class people in this way. There's already a debate beginning in Europe about a new phase of the European debt crisis and about um, trying to recoup some of this money that's been spent bailing out the system. And I'm, I'm sure that this is going to be a, a, a growing feature of the political uh, situation in the years ahead. So I think there are really, really major struggles uh, coming for us about what kind of society uh, we're going to see. But we shouldn't think we're going to see some fundamental break with neoliberalism and a shift to more, a more, to more progressive society, society without us fighting for it. And it brings me to the point I want to close on. You see, we, we desperately need these militant struggles from below. And the Black Lives Matter movement for me is one of the greatest signs of hope in my political lifetime, because what you're beginning to see is a movement that has echoes of the great rebellions of 1967 and 1968. And we should remember that those rebellions triggered a wave of struggle that encompassed movements like the Portuguese Revolution of 1974, the great militant class conflicts of 72 and, and, and other points in British history, and of course the great general strike of 1968 in Paris that began to pose revolutionary questions. And we have to say that if you look around the world today, the question that was posed by the Polish-German revolutionary at the time of the First World War, 100 years ago, Rosa Luxemburg, of uh, it being a choice between socialism and barbarism has rarely been so stark. Capitalism is leading us to a world of barbarism for its logic, for the very functioning of the system that destroys the environment, that destroys our lives and breeds racism and oppression. So we have to fight against every manifestation of that system. But I would urge you, if you're listening to this and you agree with what we're saying, 
find out what the international socialist tendency is doing in your country, join our organizations and help us fight against this brutal and brutalizing system. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Joseph. Thanks for joining us today. I'd like to echo what he said. You know, if you are listening and you agree um, on what we're saying, then please do join us. Um, I will let us know in the closing sentences about how you can go about doing that. We're going to come to Baba next because I think it only makes sense to come to Yanis last, given everything that's going on in the US. So, Baba, over to you. All right. Thank you very much, um, Sophia. Well, uh, on the question, in, in Nigeria, you've had, um, uh, as I pointed out earlier, a number of um, strikes. These have um, largely not been national strikes. You've had nurses in a number of cities go on strike. Then you've had the National um, uh, Association of the Resident Doctors. Um, it has issued an ultimatum, uh, which expires tomorrow. Uh, for provision of personal protective equipment as well as uh, uh, funding for training of uh, junior doctors. Uh, and then you've been having um, radical civil society um, taking up issues along um, on the platform of the Coalition for Revolution as well as the newly emergent uh, Alliance for Surviving uh, COVID and Beyond. Um, some of these have been involved uh, in, in the series of protests you've had recently, which tied, you know, uh, support for the, the ongoing uprising in the United States with issues like police brutality, the killings uh, by police uh, of a number of persons uh, in the country, including uh, a member of the SWL in January, uh, Alex Ogu, uh, as well as against, um, and also recently, Tina, a 17-year-old uh, a pupil uh, earlier um, two weeks back, uh, and also against the rising incidents of, of rape. Uh, I think uh, it's important to stress that this is uh, part of the social malaise that has been uh, on the increase, uh, gender-based violence in general, and, and, and rape in particular, uh, in, in the context of, of COVID-19. Um, so you, you have this, um, for now you've had um, this been in the scores in terms of the demonstrations on the street. But one thing we, we tend to often forget when we look at what is happening now, probably because of the impact of it, is that 2019 itself ended as it was a year of massive, you know, um, struggles, uh, including like in Nigeria, the revolution now protest of uh, um, August last year. So the the COVID pandemic seemed to punctuate it, but rather what happens is you have a sitting below of it. You know, you, it's simmering below, and which is what you are also now seeing busting out. So in terms of, of, of rounding up, I, I want to say first, I would say um, Luxembourg was not only correct about the, um, the alternatives of uh, socialism or barbarism, but I don't think it's an alternative. Now we are living in barbaric times. You know, it's it's that this barbaric times now has the possibility of pushing us off the precipice of existence itself. You know, I, I, I like to look at, uh, in, in looking at where we are now, I mean, what is to be done, what could happen? You know, crisis represents con historical turning points. I, I want to look at, you know, 2008 to the 2010 and then 
the, the, the crisis of the Great Depression. Why is it that in response to the Great Depression, even before World War II, you had the New Deal, the capitalists tried to reach some form of compromise, you know, uh, with working class people. But in, in, in response to the Great Recession, they rather radicalized neoliberalism. In my view, the, the reason lies mainly not just at, you know, mass uprising from below, but also the pushing forward, the clarity even if in equate form, but you know, there was clear post-capitalist vision. You know, socialism was put clearly on the agenda as possible alternatives. So this led to you know a member of parliament in the UK, for example, having to say, look, if we don't give them reforms, they'll give us revolution. But in 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 the in the Great Recession, particularly with the trade union bureaucracy, they were ready to rather seek for some forms of reforms and when you start from that even what you get is bs if you get any reform at all so how far we go depends on how much we mobilize but also on the sharpness of presentation of the alternatives and right now it, it, it the issue of also the climate crisis you know, it shows an existential problem. It shows that we need to demand the states, the, the, the bosses have been forced to take some very unusual steps. I mean, uh, requisitioning of hospitals, Spain, um, uh, reconverting production for need, like in Italy, we are, you know, uh, and not only Italy, we are auto factories, we are made to produce personal um, protective equipment and ventilators and so on and so forth. We need to fight that, no going back on this. Rather, we're going forward to democratizing the process of this being done. And we, we need to connect the dots. We need to connect, you know, the different struggles. And that is part of why, you know, the, 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 the current uprising is important, not only because of its, its anti-racist tone, but also coming up at this point in time with the, within the COVID pandemic period, it is showing that, look, the bosses thought that this will dampen us, you know, but we can fight and we are fighting despite, despite. We are, we, are in, we are in uncharted waters, but we have the compass of history, we have the compass of theory, and we have the knowledge that, look, only the people will change the world. And that is the challenge now for us as socialists to be at the fore, not only at the barricades, but in terms of, you know, interpreting what is happening. Yes, philosophers have interpreted the world and the point is to change it. Changing it itself entails, you know, massifying the radical interpretation of what is happening in presenting alternatives on what is to be done. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Baba. That was absolutely excellent. Um, passionate and always and very articulate, very clear. Uh, just like to apologise, we are running slightly over a couple minutes, but um, we're streaming live, so hopefully it doesn't bother too many people. But because we are running over, I'm going to go straight to Christine to give us her answers to the questions and final statements. Okay, thank you very much, Sim. Um, well, I just want to, to highlight three points. Um, first of all, the question about the end of, of neoliberalism, yes or no. So I think that despite the massive state um, funding um, of these programs, we still have um, the, um, like the, the logic of neoliberalism. For example, um, we have the privatization of the health system. We have um, a massive problem of um, uh, precarious um, work. So less and less um, workers um, have tariffs um, 
um, and, and, and collective bargaining. So um, I think um, this is um, this is the problem. So I don't think that neoliberalism is not that, but um, that so the capital tries to take um, um, this. Yeah, um, yeah, uses um, those methods who um, fit in their interests, um, but at the same time, um, it's the the workers internationally um, who pay the price. First, uh, the second question um, is again maybe on the question of um, um, what is our perspective, um, what is our political strategy to um, to win, um, and um, in Germany we have, um, as well as in other um, broad left-wing parties, a debate um, um, about the role of um, participating in in government, and um, I think um, if you have um, the idea of um, of governing. Um, this reflects on, on 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 your politics. For example, we had um, um, just a couple of days ago um, um, the the leader of the SPD um, said that we have a problem of racism within um, the police of structural racism. So the spokesperson of um, the left in the German Bundestag uh, said, "Well, yes, we have racism, but we shouldn't have a general suspicion against the police." So this created a huge um, anger among many of our uh, own members in the left party, many migrant and non-migrant people who know that we have this huge problem with um, structural racism um, um, also in the police in Germany. So there is um, there, there are um, uh, arguments within um, um, the left party. There's another uh, thing that we have in Berlin, um, the, the government um, where the left party is participating in a government um, is called uh, just launched a call for tender of the um, the public transport the, the metro the s-bahn um, so this could lead to a privatization of um, um, of our um, s-bahn or our metro system um, and many of the rank and file members um, are organizing against so so this is a very serious uh, debate and I think it is absolutely um, crucial to understand that we can't change um, by just overtaking um, the um, yeah the, the the state institution that but that we have to encourage and organize and mobilize um, the the fights um, from and from below. I think this is um, very important. If you don't have this understanding, you will end um, in um, um, not uh, in changing um, the institution, but being changed yourself by the institutions. Um, so my last um, um, point uh, is um, why to get um, organized. I think this is very important. Um, so especially in a time where movements are, um, um, are coming up, um, I think it's important to um, to to share experiences, to look um, what kind of movement had been successful in the in, in the last time. What had been the 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 right uh, political strategies and tactics? What had been the the wrong ones? Um, um, I think it's important, for example, in the current movement to to encourage people of color, um, um, people. Um, um, victim to racism to get organized and to take the street and we have a problem for example in Germany that um, many of the left-wing organizations are mainly white um, there's the absolute underrepresentation for example of Muslims and so it's very important to encourage people to 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 um, to, to join and at the same time um, to to win people to a perspective 
that we can't, um, we have to win together, black and white, Muslim, non-Muslim, um, to change this uh, society and to, to win the working class for, um, um, for an idea of a socialist society without exploitation and without um, oppression. And I think these experiences um, you have to, to share in, um, in, the, in, in your organization. This is why I am organized and um, I think it absolutely makes sense, um, yeah, not only in your country, but also um, with, uh, with the experiences of, um, um, of socialist um, and, and radical movements all over the world. So thank you very much for participating. Thank you very much for all the questions and contributions. And um, yeah, let's, let's uh, take the fight on. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Christine. And, you know, once again, I'm sure everyone will agree, you know, kudos to all the German anti-racist and anti-fascist act activists and the absolutely amazing demonstrations that they've been having in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. Finally, we are going to come to Yanis in the US um, to close the show and answer the final questions and have any closing statements. So over to you, Yanis. Um, I hope you can, uh, there seems to be some issue with the connection. Uh, yes, yeah, so, um, the question from the comrades in South, uh, Korea, uh, a lot of the demonstrations have been organized by the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and in New York, there is, uh, particularly a group that has, uh, been successful in calling, uh, demonstrations against, uh, the deployment of the police in the subways, where of course you know they targeted uh, black people uh, and immigrants selling uh, you know goods and food. Um, this group is called Amply Enough. Fuck the police, <laughs> FWP. Um, now it, it's a bit ultra left in its approach, but it has put up these very successful demonstrations. But the thing about um, this movement is, you know, if you go to a protest in New York, um, you are suddenly um, seeing other protests coming from other parts of the, uh, the city. And maybe you start with, you know, 5,000 people and end up with 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 people in a giant demonstration. So I think um, the, the mood is so widespread uh, and the energy of the movement is, is so... Uh, uh, powerful that um, it's almost as if these are spontaneous demonstrations. People show up at the squares, the usual meeting places, and uh, the demonstration happened. But definitely Black Lives Matter has been at the center of these protests. Now, in terms of uh, the United States right now, I mean, Trump is a political crisis for the ruling class. They did not want him uh, to be president. He won because the Democrats um, ran a neoliberal candidate um, and are doing the same mistake again with Biden. Um, and I don't think this is going to end up well for the Democrats. So there is a contradiction, I think, because Trump and the far right and the, um, and the fascists and all the racist uh, riffraff in the United States. But, and this is a real danger, something we have and against, uh, with United Against Racism and Fascism in New York, and we are also, as Marx 21, trying to initiate similar united fronts 
um, in LA and Portland and other other cities. Uh, but despite the, the 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 rise of the far right, the United States is a very diverse uh, society, much more than ever before. It is overwhelmingly progressive. It's overwhelmingly anti-racist, pro-trans, pro-LGBT, pro-immigrant. But the, it seems like it, it's not because there is this crisis that the ruling class cannot solve. So we need to keep in mind, and I think that um, these are very good times for socialists. Um, also, we have a lot of responsibilities because the traditional left that used to organize uh, these campaigns doesn't exist anymore. Um, the DSA is a very big um, organization, but it, it's not really working as a traditional left-wing party. Um, you know, DSA doesn't go to demonstrations with banners, doesn't have a newspaper, doesn't try to intervene, and doesn't really try to build united fronts because it has more the approach that, you know, if you want to fight against racism, you know, join the working group, the, the DSA working group. So Marx 21, of course, there are settings the DSA has mobilized um, for demonstrations finally uh, in this uprising. But as Marx 21, what we are doing is by applying the united front method um, into these movements, we are trying to, to, to bring an outward perspective um, and into organizing outside um, in, in the outside world. And um, it's a new group, Marx one a new group, but it's growing very fast. And I think in these favorable circumstances, um, I urge anybody who's um, watching in the United States to contact us and join us. If you're uh, um, in another country where there is an uh, international socialist tendency group, uh, please join us because uh, we have to we have to act now. As uh, all of the speakers said, uh, these are uh, very dire times, and uh, despite the openings, we have also real challenges and uh, threats uh, to deal with. Uh, thank you. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Yanis. And thanks once again to all of our speakers. Just to remind the audience, we've just had Yanis there from Marx 21 in the US. We heard from Christine, an MP of the party Delinka and also a supporter of Marx 21 in Germany. We have Baba Ai, the editor of Socialist Worker in Nigeria and a member of the Socialist Workers League there. And also Joseph Chunara, a member of the British Socialist Workers Party. I'd like to thank Everybody, once again, for tuning in and for joining. A thank you to our tech team behind the scenes who have made this meeting happen. And um, this was the first of uh, what we hope to be many international socialist tendency meetings. So really happy that it is such a success. And like all speakers said, um, if you like what our speakers um, have said and you agree with us, there are links to the different organizations that you can find at internationalsocialist.org. So please do consider joining us. Um, I'm gonna leave you all now. So once more, thank you for watching, stay safe, and of course, stay socialist. Thank you very much. <laughs>